Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorum Deo Church, and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life, and today we're talking about the limits of psychiatry. And before we get started on this topic, I want to shout out to listener Kelsey, who brought us not just cinnamon rolls, but maple frosted cinnamon rolls, which are my favorite. Delicious. And she suggested warming them up in the microwave, which I also did. And man, Kelsey, thanks for... Thanks for setting us up with some delicious snacks for this podcast. The red and green sprinkles were a nice touch too. Yeah, it's a nice Christmas time touch. We are engaging today a very long form article about the topic of mental illness from Marco Ramos, who is a historian of medicine at Yale University. I came across this article somehow on Twitter. I read it. I found it fascinating. I sent it to the crew so that we could talk about it um, on an episode. I want to first of all sort of set up why do I... Why does this topic fascinate me? Why do I want to talk about it? There are two reasons. Number one, because I think it actually makes an apologetic for Christian community and how important um, our surroundings are for mental health, how important friendship, community, social realities are in bringing healing to us. And so I just think there's something here for us to learn as Christians about why creating dense communities that are committed to the gospel and committed to loving one another and committing to healing are important. I also like any article that just helps us take a critical view of the world we live in and helps us ask questions about what we might have assumed is true that actually isn't true. And I think this is one of those articles that did that for me with the 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 category functionally called brain research, okay? So let's just let's call it that. That's what Marco Ramos is writing about. I want to read you the first couple um, paragraphs of the article. This is a long piece it's long-form journalism. It's a actually a literature review of two books on the history of mental illness. And so he is basically a specialist in this area, reading these two books that are a history of the treatment of mental illness over the last century or so. And he's basically saying, here's what these two books have to show us about how our society has approached this topic. And what's interesting is Marco Ramos himself, what would you call him, Chris? Like a, a, a woke Marxist? Oh, he's definitely a Marxist. I, I mean, his, his reading is slanted in like a an interesting direction, like liberation theology yeah. kind of direction. Yep. It's almost like if you if you were a Latin American liberation theologian who went to Yale and studied medicine, this is the article you'd write. So it's he's not coming from Christian presuppositions, nor is he prescribing, hey, you know what the answer is? Be involved in the local church. But because Marxists actually are really good at looking through a critical lens at things and sort of rethinking how our society has viewed certain things, that's what actually makes this article fascinating because he has some tools here to apply to critique in ways that I think we as Christians can learn from what he's asking and saying. Let me read the introductory two paragraphs. He writes, in 1990, President George Bush announced that a new era of discovery was dawning in brain research. Over the next several decades, the U.S. government poured billions of dollars into science that promised to revolutionize our understanding of psychiatric disorders from depression and bipolar disorder to schizophrenia. Scientists imagined that mental illnesses in the future might be diagnosed with genetic tests, a simple blood draw, or perhaps a scan of your brain. New pharmaceuticals would target specific neurochemical imbalances, resulting in more effective treatments. The 1990s, Bush declared, would be remembered as the decade of the brain. 
Looking back as a psychiatrist and historian today, I find these hopes feel quaint. They remind me of other misplaced versions of technological futures from the 20th century. 30 years later, we still have no biological tests for psychiatric disorders, and none is in the pipeline. We also have not had any significant breakthroughs in treatment. For decades, the pharmaceutical industry has churned out dozens of antidepressants and antipsychotics, but there is no evidence that they are more effective than the drug that emerged between 1950 and 1990. Biological research has also failed to reveal why psychiatric drugs help some patients, but not others. When a patient asks me how an antidepressant works, I have to shrug my shoulders and say, we just don't know, but we do have evidence that there's about a 30% chance it will help your mood. So you see what he's setting up there. He's basically saying, hey, for most of your lifetime, if you're a listener, you've been told that you know there all these all this cutting edge brain research is going to help reshape how we think about things like depression and bipolar and other forms of uh, mental illness, and that the answers that we're getting are going to help us actually tackle this and resolve this problem. And what he is saying is actually, there's no evidence that we know any more about how these things work than we did 30 years ago. And the ways they're treated are about the same as they were back in the 1990s. And so it's a fascinating critique of, because I think for many Christians, especially people like me who aren't specialists in this area, I've just sort of assumed like, oh yeah, we're making tons of traction and progress and brain scans. And, you know, people are doing really good work on like connecting how the brain malfunctions to some of the ways that it affects our actual moods and sort of long-term disorders. And uh, he quotes later on in the article, the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health. This is from 2015, so not that long ago. Thomas Insel is the director or was the director at that time. He writes, I spent 13 years at the NIMH, which by the way is the number one national agency charged by the government with overseeing mental health research, right? The National Institute of Mental Health. I spent 13 years pushing on the neuroscience and genetics of mental disorders. And when I look back, I realized that while I succeeded at getting lots of really cool papers published by cool scientists at fairly large costs, I think $20 billion, I don't think we moved the needle in reducing suicide, reducing hospitalizations, improving recovery for the tens of millions of people who have mental illness. So the reason I want to talk about this topic as part of this podcast is because I think all of us are walking alongside people in our churches who struggle with various kinds of mental illness. All of us want to see them whole and healed. And it's important that we understand then as, as we think about what, is, what do we know about this and what sort of is the body of knowledge that's out there that we, that we have accurate senses of, here's what we do and don't know about this. And this is one of those articles that says basically the discipline of psychiatry has purported to know some things that actually it turns out we don't really know. And we kind of understand that certain things work and certain things don't. But the why, why does that work? Why does that treatment work and that other one doesn't? We don't know so much about. And so this seems interesting to me as we try to help people think about the holistic need for wholeness rather than sort of very specific approaches. And hey, if you just go do this and take this treatment and see this person or get on this drug, it'll solve things. I don't. I think most of us would say, hey, wholeness and health seems to be a, a more holistic approach than that. And there's certainly, you know, pharm- pharmaceuticals can be helpful and medicines can be helpful and therapy can be helpful, but also just being immersed in a community of people who love you 
seems to be a pretty important part of the equation. That's actually where this article ends up getting to later on. The article continues to review basically the history of the dealing with mental illness over the past 100 years or so, maybe 130 years. Um, I'm going to read a few excerpts. He says, The first revolution in American psychiatry arrived in the 19th century when, you know, he, he goes on to talk about how we had these large lunatic asylums and we just institutionalized people. And uh, there was someone in Europe who decided that um, they, they called this neuroanatomy, right? That like basically what we need to do is dissect your brain and that will help us figure out what's going on. So there were all these dissections of, you know, when someone would die who had had a mental illness, they would just cut them open and dissect the brain. And uh, he says the problem was that neuroanatomists had no idea what they were looking for. It was a mythology. So there was a whole trend back in the early 1900s of let's just dissect brains and we'll learn everything we need to know. Well, that didn't work. The second push then was experimentation that um, psychosis could be treated by the surgical removal of potential sources of infection. So there's this Dr. Henry Cotton who just basically started removing all kinds of things from people's bodies to see if like your toothache was connected to your mental illness. And so Literally, there's just this wave of let's just cut things out of you and see how that works. I mean, this hopefully sounds a little bit medieval. We should try that now. Wait, wait, no, 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 no. I was going to make this comment. Mindy was telling me about this the other day that the new kind of like hippie thing is connecting your teeth to different ailments in your body. And so depending on how you brush or floss and what, like if you get infections in your tooth, it's it's a real thing. It's a real thing. So maybe. Well, he might've been onto something. They were a little crude in just cutting parts out of your body. Uh, uh, Of course, the most extreme experiment of this period was lobotomy, which you probably know about. They just drill into your head and start cutting on your frontal lobe. (laughs) Chris (laughs) Chris is freaked out about this. This blow me away. I want to read you a quote from this article that should really bother you. The innovation that is lobotomy earned Portuguese neurologist Egan Moniz a Nobel Prize of Medicine in 1949. Guys, 1949 was not that long ago. Not that long. A guy earned a Nobel Prize in medicine for drilling a hole in your skull and just cutting away on your brain until you basically stopped responding to stimuli. That's not good. But 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 trust the science. Yeah, when they tell you yeah. trust the science, you'd be like, yeah, you know what? There's times where that's just been a bad idea. The surgeon, imagine going in. You're like, okay, let's give it a shot. The surgeon will stop cutting your brain when the patient gets confused. Yeah. Well... I should. Are you confused yet? How you feel? I feel real confused confused right now. Well, let's just keep cutting. Okay, so that, hey, that was a real treatment for mental illness in 1949, a Nobel Prize treatment. All right, the next um, revolution was psychoanalysis, which we're probably pretty familiar with. All of us have studied Freud in school, right, and the whole idea of psychoanalysis. And he writes, the boom and bust, like the boom and bust of revolutions before it, psychoanalysis failed to deliver on its overambition. And basically, you know, the downside of psychiatry is, you know, it's just like, hey, if we can treat all the un- underlying symptoms underneath this, then then you'll be healed. And of course, that overpromised and underdelivered. And so he says the most recent revolution, going back to about the 1980s, is what they call biological psychiatry, right? So this is, um, you know, brain mapping, brain scans, studying the biology of the brain to basically say, hey, instead of just like asking you to lay on a couch and talk about your life. If we can take a scan of your brain, if we can understand the biology of the brain, this is all biological, it's neurochemical, it comes down to neurotransmitters and just having the right sort of biology. And if we can just get that dialed in, that will, you know, 
heal or, or lead to great progress in the treatment of mental illness. Um, the author says the, th- the publication of the third edition of the DSM in 1980 um, heralded the birth of what proponents called a biological revolution in psychiatry, while the turn to biology has not meaningfully impacted diagnosis or treatment, it has been wildly successful as a marketing strategy for psychopharmaceuticals. So with the turn to biology, right, if actually the problem is just your brain biology is off and we need to fix that, well, obviously that's a real promising field for, for drug companies who can say, cool, we can, we can create a drug that will change the biology of your brain or that will affect it in certain ways. I'm going to read you some quotes from this article. Again, this is a historian of medicine at Yale University. And I think these should trouble you. These should help you as a Christian have a healthy sense of suspicion toward the structural factors that drive some of modern medicine where instead of being told, hey, let's take a holistic approach, you're just told, here's the answer, right? Listen, psychiatric markets were attractive to pharmaceutical companies for at least two reasons in the 1980s. First, psychotropics are taken over long periods of time. Many patients are lifelong consumers. Second, self-perception and subjective experience play major roles in the diagnosis of mental illness. This fact, pharma executives realized, means that demand can be influenced and manipulated by effective marketing that positions drugs as a solution to consumers' dissatisfaction with their lives. Therefore, in the 1990s, drug companies invested millions to create direct-to-consumer advertisements like the ones you see on TV that tell you all the side effects of the drugs. It's like, also, this could kill you. Watch out for blah, 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 blah. These ads claim that their drugs targeted chemical imbalances in the brain that cause everyday feelings of depression and anxiety in Americans. In addition to consumer demand, the industry also focused their considerable influence on prescribers. That's not new to you. You've um, probably seen some of the lawsuits that have been filed in recent years um, about the ways pharmaceutical companies have sort of targeted doctors in uh, ways that offered unfair influence. Listen to this. Today, Big Pharma financially supports almost every journal and scientific meeting in psychiatry. Some 69% of the members of the task force of the current DSM-5 disclosed financial ties to the pharmaceutical industry. Pharma's influence on the DSM has contributed to an expansion of diagnostic categories so that the concept of mental illness itself has become more inclusive, increasing the size of potential drug markets. Over the last half century, pharma has also influenced the federal approval of drugs by the FDA. Today, the FDA gets 46% of its budget from companies filing drug application and companies conduct the safety and efficacy trials on the drugs that they produce. This obvious conflict of interest, and let's just say, yes, it is an obvious conflict of interest, has led pharma to distort evidence of safety and efficacy, hide negative results and side effect data, and hire ghostwriters to pen academic articles. While a number of major civil and criminal rulings have punished companies for these offenses, the structural source of this unethical behavior, the fact that the industry evaluates the products that it profits from, remains today. The psychotropic drug industry today is worth almost $60 billion, and one in six Americans took a psychiatric medication in the last year. 
So yeah, that should trouble you. It sounds like the, the people selling the drugs are pretty heavily involved in the people marketing the drugs, evaluating the drugs, testing the drugs, making the drugs legal. That's some serious collusion. Yeah, and and I think this has been something that's been out there for a while that there is an incentive for doctors to prescribe them. And as he points out that for a lot of psychiatrists, basically their job now is to diagnose, find the right medication, and now monitor effectiveness symptoms rather than actually counsel, you know, the traditional thought of like actually counseling you and help you work through uh, whatever underlying issues are there. So, so you basically have become a medicine manager in some ways. Yes. He has this point, this thing that like, at least in psychoanalysis, your therapist had to actually like sit down and listen to you. Now it's just, they're trying to sort of dial in what medication might you need. Yeah. And again, that's probably oversimplified, but I think it points to some of the um, challenges, how changes in the way illnesses are understood also lead to changes in how they're treated. And also the time that goes into that analysis is not very long right. on average. You know, it's like 15 to 20 minutes right. is what he mentions in here. Now he could be exaggerating, like you said, but still there's not a, there's not a treatment of the whole person. Right. So you might ask, okay, thanks for that history of psychiatry over the last hundred years, Bob. Really cool. That's been a fascinating podcast so far. Uh, where are we headed now? What's the future of psychiatry? Well, Here's what Marco Ramos wants to tell you. The only real source of excitement on psychiatry's horizon seems to be psychedelics. Yeah, an untapped market. Nonprofit organizations and academic researchers are currently conducting over 50 M, or sorry, 50 FDA trials of ecstasy, magic mushrooms, LSD, mescaline, and ayahuasca for a wide range of psychiatric disorders. Esketamine has already been approved for treatment-resistant depression. Researchers and journalists have dubbed these developments a psychedelic renaissance that will revolutionize psychiatry, open new understandings of the connection between mind and brain, and provide benefit to thousands of patients. Basically, what we're going to do is we're just going to all do drugs, and that's going to make us better. I think we tried this in the 60s already, didn't we? we? 60 years ago, we cut into your head until you got confused. Now we're just going to say... Hey, man, it's cool if you're confused. <laughs> Let's just be confused together. Or we used to pump your body with electricity. Yeah, now we're just going to get you high enough and tripped out enough that all your problems somehow magically change. Yeah. Uh, he says, doesn't this all sound too familiar? The psychedelic renaissance feels like the next revolution with bombastic claims, massive financial investment, and uncertain benefit. For patients. By the way, I want to read this next paragraph because it made me go, holy cow, I can't believe they can do this. Big Pharma, <laughs> not to be left out, Big Pharma is also up to its usual tricks. As I have noted elsewhere, and he links to wherever the elsewhere is, Johnson & Johnson was interested in ketamine's benefits for depression, but could not patent the drug because it was already a cheap generic. J&J decided to make a copycat chemically isolating one of the compound's mirror images. They called this Me Too compound, Spravato, patented the drug, and now charge almost $1,000 per dose. Companies are already using similar tactics to isolate patentable compounds from psychoactive botanicals that indigenous communities have used for centuries. So basically, the science is so good here that you can basically take this drug they can isolate something that has a similar effect, brand it, and patent it, and then sell it for $1,000 a dose. 
It's a lot of money. Yeah, apparently the same drugs you can just find in nature, Johnson & Johnson will sell them to you for $1,000 because you don't know that they're out there. And in according with his other stats that you mentioned a moment ago, one in six Americans had some sort of psychiatric drug last year, which means we'll be on track to have some psychedelics soon yeah. as well. Yeah. One in six people in your gospel community. Right. So pastors and Christians need to be aware of this. Like this is where it's headed is like, you know, somebody in your gospel community is going to be prescribed basically a, a you know, a, a generic version of LSD or of, you know, ecstasy or and whatever. Most, as, won't, most won't think twice about it. They'll just, yeah, send it to my insurance. Right. He's getting to the end of the article. It says, as a psychiatrist myself, I believe an important part of this tragedy is the silence and lack of accountability among those who represent our field. Despite the decreasing life expectancy of people with mental illness, high rates of incarceration and homelessness, and the failure of the biological paradigm, the biopsychiatric research machine just keeps growing. So he basically seems to be throwing a flag and saying, hey, none of this is actually proving to do anything meaningful. However, because there's such a machine built here with pharmaceutical companies and research institutions and academic psychiatry and all of this, it, the train is not stopping, even though we can look and say, this hasn't actually taught us anything new about how mental illness works. In fact, the title of the article is, Mental Illness is Not in Your Brain. Because the point he's trying to make is, all the people who thought they were going to be able to tell us where in the brain mental illness was located and, and that there was going to be treatment, brain-level treatment that would solve it, that has proven to not be true at all. And so I think it's good when someone raises um, an issue like this and says, hey, what you're hearing out there about the promise of this actually just hasn't paid off. It hasn't um, delivered on anything. Now, I want to read a, uh, I want to read part of the paragraph that's like, okay, now you can see where his bias is and where he's coming from. Because it's kind of, it's one of those like, okay, this is where he got into like, he pulled out the woke dictionary and just tried to throw some words in a paragraph. Um, <laughs> While this movement to deinstitutionalize, he's talking about a movement of, um, of like neurodivergence from the 1970s, like these sort of anti-culture people. While this movement to deinstitutionalize psychiatry did not result in wholesale liberation of people with disabilities in the United States, it offers important lessons about how communities can successfully resist the structures that repress them in the name of care. He goes on to say, the answer is collective liberation from the structural conditions that produce the vast extent of psychological suffering and trauma. Now, again, very Marxist analysis. I don't think there are no structural conditions, but he's basically one of these guys like, hey, forget all this psychiatry stuff and all these drugs. We just need to you know, liberate people from the structural conditions that keep them in mental illness. Yeah, because throughout this article, uh, he peppers examples of one of the problems with all, he, as he goes through this history, one of the and maybe the biggest problem with all this is that in all of these misfires, the communities that have suffered the most have typically been those minority communities, or he, he points out the homosexual community. And so he, he's also kind of pointing out the injustice underneath all of this, which I think in a lot of ways is fueling some of this article. Yes. Agreed. Now, so I think the, the import of this article for pastors and Christians and, you know, thoughtful Christians who are trying to engage our culture is twofold. One is just to acknowledge, Hey, Anxiety, depression, um, various kinds of mental illness, these are a reality in every church and probably in your group of friends. And you just need to understand that the promises that will always be made by the culture are over-promises. The, you know, anybody who tells you, hey, we can fix this, we can solve this, we can, it, it's just probably never quite as true 
clean and beautiful as it sounds. And I think it's important for Christians to know that because what I've seen sometimes is, you know, people who are plagued by these things, they're really excited to know like, hey, this might be the answer. And then super discouraged when it seems like it doesn't accomplish what they were hoping it would accomplish. And so I think it's just wise for Christians to have a measured approach to life in a fallen world that says, hey, you know what, Chris, there's a 30% chance that drug will help you, but there's also a 70% chance it won't. And so it's, you know, if it doesn't, man, we're still going to be here with you, praying with you, walking with you, you know, rather than sort of riding this roller coaster of promise that this is going to solve all my problems. And then when it doesn't, we're really discouraged. So I think there's, there's wisdom for us here in just how to live life in a fallen world, in a culture that really wants to believe that there is a medical or capitalist solution to everything, that if we just spend the right money on it and do the right research, we can figure it out. The other thing that's always preying on is efficiency. Mm-hmm. So Big mm-hmm. Pharma is obviously tapping into the, at least in America, how enamored we are with quickness. And we all know that around this table, at least when it comes to pastoral counseling, change is very slow, usually messy, and everybody comes in wanting help now, you know? So they're preying on that. And you got to do a lot of work, you know, to have lasting change. I also think that the second thing we can learn here is just that um, our social conditions really do matter. And so actually like being a part of healthy community, being together with one another, caring for another for the long haul over time actually is really crucial to long-term flourishing and health. And so again, I think because we live in an individualistic world, we have two temptations at the same time. One is the quick fix, right? Hey, where can I get this solution to my pain? And then the other is individualism. So I probably, these people probably don't want to know about all this stuff. And I, you know, I probably don't need to bring folks into this. And it's just kind of an icky part of my story. And I don't really want to go there. And so at the same time that we isolate from community, we believe that there's a quick fix out there, whether it's a, a doctor or a therapist or a pill or whatever. And I think that actually what we need to do is embrace. And even though he's writing as a Marxist, he says, hey, social conditions have a dramatic effect on people's well-being. And so the more we can emphasize as the church, hey, the church's job is to be a place of social well-being, of communal health, of actually deepening relationships and friendships and where people can be known and can know one another that that actually is a key piece of the puzzle, that what we have to offer the world, to say it another way, is the very thing that psychiatry and, and big pharma don't seem to be able to offer, which is a meaningful, helpful approach to walking in, in this journey. A helpful little anecdote that he has towards the end of the article, he quotes one of his undergrad professors, uh, the class he took was the history of drugs, and this professor asked, uh, the question is not only what is the right drug for me, but also what would the world have to look like for me not to need drugs at all? So I think there's a, there's kind of an eschatological question in there of like, Hey, that's, you know, we're hoping for the, the wholeness and the restoration that Jesus is going to bring. So like, like that's like kind of the ultimate answer to the question, but what is the answer to that question while we live in the already not yet in the sense of what would my world need to look like for me not to need these drugs. And I think it gets right to what you're talking about. What kind of community do I need to be in? What, what, what do I need to give my life to and how I live my life and order my life? What's, what's giving my life order maybe is a better way to put it. That is going to eliminate the need for running to these drugs. It doesn't mean that my pro, you know, necessarily my brokenness is gone. My sin's gone, 
but the way that my life is ordered and structured, what's supporting me and caring for me is going to eliminate the need for these drugs that only have, you know, at best a 30% chance to work anyway. And so I, I like, again, and, and we were saying this before we turned on the microphones, like I've read way too much Marxist literature in my life. <laughs> but one of the things that I've always appreciated about the way Marxists can kind of look at things is they take social conditions seriously and formation seriously. And for Christians, uh, to, as you've been pointing out, Bob, like what does it mean for us to order and structure our life oriented towards wholeness and the hope of wholeness? I think what you said about the individualization and the isolation is really key because if you remember just, just a few years ago, all of this is very private. Nobody was, nobody was proclaiming from the rooftops, Hey, I think I have a problem. Mm. You know, everything is private. Well, in the medical world, everything is protected by law is private as well. So I think the one anothering, I think the community, I think all of that social structure that you're talking about is super key for the church to tap into. Let me read a, a sentence from Ramos, and again, he's a Marxist, so to, to Chris's point, he does not have a kingdom eschatological perspective, but he is aware of social conditions. He says, this is a call to mobilize against the pathogenic features of our local social climates, from toxic training programs and high-pressure university cultures to dehumanizing factory floors. If you just think about that sentence, what he's acknowledging is, like, let's think about a high-pressure university culture, which my kids are in right now, and one of yours as well, Dusty. Right? That's a, that's It has a dehumanizing effect. It raises anxiety. It creates opportunities for stress. And what he's saying is like, hey, that's a social condition that we actually have some responsibility to own and that we could create an alternative to, right? If a university culture wasn't so high-stress, high-pressure, driven by sort of success and productivity and efficiency that would change how much mental illness was present in that condition. And so what he is pointing to, I think, is the fact of as the, the more the church can be a healthy, vibrant, relationally dense, gospel-rich culture, and that people can dwell in that, the more actually that can have an effect on our well-being, even our mental well-being, even things like depression and like anxiety that are that can be very persistent for people and very sort of tough to sort out. How do I grow through this? But there, he, he's acknowledging, hey, social factors, social conditions are really important here. And so as the church, we have an opportunity to create a society, an alternative community, a little outpost of the kingdom where people can find wholeness and healing and flourishing and where we can go deep with one another, where we can support one another, where we can love one another. And so I, I think I read this article and I heard this as an invitation to, hey, a lot of the big promises made by biological uh, psychiatry have not come true. What a great opportunity for the church to continue doing faithfully what the church has always tried to do, which is to be a dense, um, ethical, moral, beautiful community for people that pulls them into a fuller kind of community. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.